Just a quick note, the song we've chosen for after the sermon, number number 193, we're going to sing the first four stanzas only. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John, John chapter 1. I want to read the first 13 verses with you. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. I want to read the verses 1 through to the end of verse 13. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. Notice with me that the Word is spelt with a capital W. That means the Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our text is the verse 13. Verse 13, I want to read it again. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here in Emmanuel and Jordan with me this morning. A few moments ago, we stood at the baptismal font, and, and, and we were reminded that this precious little child of Chris and Melissa, this little guy only several weeks old, was born and conceived in sin, worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. In other words, little Maxwell, along with every other man, woman, and child, comes into this world at enmity with God, and, and with every other member of the human race, stands condemned, and despite his baptism, with nothing more, stands eternally lost. And that corresponds exactly with what John writes in his gospel. And he's going to explain that to us in our text of this morning. If you are familiar with John's gospel, you will know that the entire theme of his gospel is the glory of Jesus as the son of the living God. However, the first 18 verses of chapter 1 serve as an introduction to John's letter. And we marvel as as we read those few verses 
We discover the beauty of even of the composition when we realize that already in just those few short verses, John reveals to us, first of all, Jesus in the beginning, verse 1. Jesus at the creation, verse 3. Jesus after the fall, verse 5. And Jesus at the incarnation, verse 11. And when we read this introduction carefully, then we notice that John lays down a very great, important principle which is necessary for a proper understanding of all that follows in the rest of his gospel. First, John is concerned that man must know and believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God, come in the flesh to propitiate the sins of the flesh. And secondly, John is determined that man must know that he and every man with him has been alienated from God and that man must again come to God if he hopes to taste of eternal rest. And then finally, in the last verse of the introduction, the verse which we have under our consideration this morning as our text, John would have us know how man is to be returned to God's favor. We hear it in the words of our text. Not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. And in the context of a baptism sermon this morning, service, I want to administer God's word to you using as my theme begotten of God. And following the leading of the text, we will examine, first of all, the false notions of self-styled sonship. And then secondly, we want to learn of the God-ordained means of sonship. And then finally, we want to draw some conclusions and make a few words of application for ourselves and for our children. So begotten of God, the false notions, the God-ordained means of it, and a few words of application for ourselves. Congregation, the all-inclusive, the all-encompassing thought contained in our text is begotten of God. And that phrase itself immediately ushers us into the central miracle of all of Christianity. The very existence of the church, her source of life and strength, her, her influence in, in the home and in the world, all of it proceeds from that fundamental miracle of new life, the new life of the individual soul. The dynamic in each case is, first of all, the new life in the individual Christian and that new life of individuals collectively in the church enables the congregation as a body to show forth the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that new life is the source, that new life is the source and the force of the church's aggression in the world. Follow this with me. When we listened to the questions asked of Chris and Melissa this morning when they presented little Maxwell for baptism with regard to the condition of their precious little boy, if you listen carefully, you will remember that it was asked of them, do you believe that the Bible teaches us that this little child was conceived and born in sin and therefore worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. Imagine that, if you will. Imagine that. Little Maxwell, just a few weeks old, just a few weeks old, and as Paul says in Romans 9, before he has even done anything good or bad, worthy of condemnation. And the answer from the parents was, yes, yes, we do so believe. But the question didn't stop there. 
Then they were asked, do you also believe that we and our children, including Maxwell, are sanctified in Christ and therefore ought to be baptized? And again, their answer was yes. And capture now with me what was said there. In the question and the answer, the parents confessed with their scriptures that their child, by virtue of his conception and birth, with nothing more, has no hope of salvation. They confess that in addition to the baptism, something more, something more is required, and that something more, according to their vows, is that their child needs to be sanctified. He needs to be made holy in and by Christ. And this being, this being made new or, 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 or beginning anew, this possibility and necessity of being remade or reborn is a prerequisite for every man, woman, and child in the world and, and, and is one of the main themes of the entire Gospel of John. In the verses we have read, John has been speaking of the ones who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to them. And then, and then John adds that those who believed in him, those who received him, did so because they had experienced rebirth. And then we notice carefully that John tells us in, in Scripture that these people experienced new birth and they were reborn. They experienced rebirth, not of blood not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. That's what we read in our text. John says those who came to him in faith did so because they were begotten of God. But just what does that mean to be begotten of God? Well, contemporary Christianity offers several different answers to the question, and most of those answers are refuted by John here in our text. Still today, many even sincere people are sincerely wrong on this matter of rebirth, and therefore following the leading of our text, along with the Apostle John, we too need to clear away some unscriptural views which hinder our ability to understand this aspect of God's truth. Obviously, little has changed since the days of the Apostle John. Still today, much of contemporary Christianity is in conflict with God's own word when it comes to the question of new life in Christ. And, and so it will be necessary for us, too, to follow John's example and to clear away some of the false notions being propagated in many evangelical churches today. In our text of this morning, John contrasts the true manner of rebirth over against three false notions. Not this way, not this way, not this way even, but this way, says John, only this way. When we then read the three negatives given by him, then it becomes crystal clear to us, or at least it should, that John's very first concern here is to convince men and women to abandon any and all hope of any involvement of self in that process of regeneration. You remember perhaps that that was the mistake made by Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's gospel. But John here in our text 
Here immediately he dispels any notion that a person can be born again through some human effort or agency. And now to point out this error is the main burden of our text of this morning for the verse tells us not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh. No, no, says John, born again. It's not a matter of man's will. It's not a matter of man's decision. It's not a matter of man's choosing. No, no, it's only of and by God. And although these three negatives form a unit, and although, and although each of them are intended to dispel any notion of a possible self-involvement in rebirth, we need to take a few moments to identify each of these three false notions, for they are so prevalent yet today in our culture. What does John mean when he says that we are not born into God's family by blood? Well, simply put, John here instructs us that we cannot become children of God by way of blood or heritage. Or if you will, we do not become sons and daughters of God simply by virtue of being born of a correct lineage or of Christian parents. And this is a very dangerous, albeit very common assumption among many Christians. Allow me a a brief illustration here. Years ago, when certain class structures were still defined and appreciated, men and women spoke of noble blood, or if you will, blue blood. The elite classes, the aristocracy, maintained itself by virtue of family lineage. And those born in the upper class, they remained upper class by virtue of birth. And all those born in the family were automatically part of the elite simply by being born into it. And those of the working class could not ever achieve that status simply because they were not born, or they were born, of less than noble blood. And using this analogy then, John here immediately dispels the notion that anyone can assume to be a Christian because of his or her relationship to godly parents or family. That was the fatal error of the Jews of the New Testament, you will remember. They believed themselves to be right with God because of their birth as Jews. When Jesus walked among them on this earth, the Jews boasted of him, of their special status, because of their physical ancestry. We hear them in John chapter 6, also in his gospel, saying, We are Abraham's children. How proud they were of their lineage and they sheltered in that ancestral heritage. The presupposition, or if you will, their assumption went something like this. God's covenant promise, God's covenant promise was to Abraham and his seed. We are the physical descendants of Abraham. We are Abraham's seed. Ergo, we are sons of God. Jesus, however, echoes the thought expressed here in our text and warns the Jews that it was not a physical, but a spiritual relationship that was required with Abraham. And in fact, Jesus points out that the actions of the Jews identified them not as being not sons of God at all. No, says Jesus, if you were really sons of, of Abraham, you would do the things of Abraham. But you, even though you are physical descendants of Abraham, you try to kill me. And by that, we know that you are not of God, but you are still of your father, the devil. People God, we need to understand the teaching of our Lord. We need to be acutely aware that we may never, never, ever 
consider or assume ourselves to be Christian by virtue of being born of Christian parents, being raised in a Christian home, attending Christian schools, or being born or even baptized in a faithful Christian church. These things are a great blessing and a great privilege and important, but in and of themselves have no merit towards salvation. Oh, no. Christ and John here in our text teach us clearly that nothing relating to our physical birth or even external privileges can ever, ever make us right with God. Our text continues, having dealt with that false notion that our heritage does not, does, does not translate into automatic sonship, John now continues to remove another great error, an error still very prevalent among modern, contemporary, and pragmatic Christianity. We hear him, oh no, not by blood, not by blood, not by heritage, but also not through the will of the flesh. And to understand that, we need to understand what is meant by flesh. Well, in the New Testament, the word flesh is used to signify all that we are in terms of our natural capacities. Follow this with me. The Bible wants us to know clearly that as a result of sin in the world, each of us come into this world by nature being dead in sin and trespass. By nature, we are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. That is what is born out of our natural inclinations. That is our flesh. And as Paul puts it so succinctly, the flesh profits nothing. The flesh avails nothing. The flesh or our natural selves can do nothing pleasing to God. In fact, in fact, it is at enmity with God. And yet, incredibly, in spite of the clear testimony of Scripture, we are confronted daily with those who teach us that spiritually dead men and women can bring themselves to life. They want us to know that men and women can give themselves new life through exercising their own will. Fallen men and women can become Christian by making the right decision. They need to make a conscious choice involving their own emotions. And what John insists that we know here is that men and women can no more become Christian by exercising their own will than they can by being born of Christian parents. Ah, my dear precious people of God, follow carefully with me for a moment as we see here the contrast and the, and the, con, con, the conflict, if you will, of the clear word of God and much of contemporary Christianity as we see it all around us. Many Christian churches and most Christian people today, they have abandoned the central truth of God and consequently their preaching, their teaching, and their evangelistic efforts are comprised of creating atmospheres conducive to eliciting a response of an emotion or a decision of man. You've all heard of or perhaps even experienced what is known as an altar call where spiritually dead men and women are urged to make a decision to come forward and out of their darkness and into light. But the invitation springs from a compromised theology. The call is based on the misconception that man can choose to be born again. A very serious error has crept into their theology and man and not God becomes the center and the focus in this matter of rebirth. 
And the Bible here in the words of our text sets his face as flint against that false notion and clearly teaches that man can indeed, man can indeed be moved to tears in, in a seeker service or a revival meeting. Man can indeed be moved under the right circumstances to come forward and to even commit his whole life to Christ. But, 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 that in and of itself with nothing more will still not yet transform him into a child of God. No, says John, no, not by heritage, not by blood, and also not by the, the will of human fallen flesh. John continues. He wants his audience to know that indeed men and women and children become sons and daughters of God, not by blood, not by the exercise of their own flesh, but neither can man be translated to new life through the will of man. And my dear people, God, although this third negative is very closely related to the second, yet we're, we need to capture another concept here. Walk with me. It's not uncommon to hear people tell us that they are convinced that men and women can become Christian by their own determination. Surely, if one is determined enough to do the right things, surely man can pull himself up out of darkness by his own bootstraps. Surely if a man will only discipline himself to live a godly life, then certainly man can find God's favor. And won't God then be pleased with our obedient Christian life and lifestyle? And again, John challenges and repudiates the argument. Oh, indeed, man can. Man can, through hard work and determination, man can achieve many things for himself morally and ethically. He can discipline himself. He can modify his behavior to such an extent that through his own efforts, he would lead an exemplary life of piety and godliness. He can lead a very pious life and lifestyle, but in the final analysis, it is pietism and not piety that motivates him. You see, pietism is something that can be produced by man. Piety is a gift of God. In other words, man can discipline himself to live a godly life, even a Christ-like life. But, but, but according to our text, that will still not make him a child of God or an heir to heaven. No, says John. In order to become a child of God, man needs to be, hear me well, man needs to be given God's life. And that becomes ours only from God on the basis of God's sovereign electing grace in Jesus Christ. And that now is the burden of John's heart throughout his entire gospel. So then having clearly taught us how one is not made right with God, he then goes on to instruct us how one does become a child of God. We hear him in our text, not by being born of Christian parents, not by exercising or making his own decision, not by determining to live a Christian life, no, a pox on it all. He is a pox on it all. Away with it all, says John. The only way that men and women can be born again and return to God is to be begotten of God. Capture that with me. It is indeed true that in order to receive new life, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That needs to be underscored first of all. There is no other name under heaven by, or earth by which we can be saved. 
John tells us that Jesus gives power to become children to all who believe on the Lord. But now, and here we've come to the crucial hub of the matter. And this is where we part company with most, almost all of contemporary Christianity. But, says John, but, yes, you must believe. But at the same time, you must almost know, you must, you must also know that if you do believe, it is only because God has taken the divine initiative to enable you to believe in him. In other words, man never, ever makes that first, final, first move towards God. Incidentally, how fitting then the song that Chris and Melissa chose to sing at the font this morning, I sought the Lord, and afterwards I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. Precisely, people of God, precisely. It is always God who searches out his own, creating faith in the heart, enabling men and women, dead men and women, men dead and men, men and women dead in sin and trespass, enabling them to respond in faith to the gospel call. No one could ever be saved without that prior work of God. And God performs that miracle of rebirth out of sheer grace through the preaching of the word of God. And congregation, I am painfully and acutely aware that many people, even some Christian people, will not like what is being taught us here. In fact, many very sincere and well-intentioned Christians are offended when the truth of God's sovereignty in matters of salvation are taught. And although that saddens us, it ought not to surprise us. For you see, from the very beginning, this doctrine of sovereign electing grace has been offensive to modern autonomous man. How could it be otherwise? Man's grace greatest sin beginning already in paradise was human pride. It was pride that brought ruin upon God's created order and now this doctrine of sovereign grace strips man of his human self-pride and gives all the glory to God. People go, I am well aware that the doctrine of sovereign grace is the minority position among churches today. And I appreciate also that this unpopular doctrinal truth is becoming increasingly more difficult to maintain. It is frequently argued that the differences between the two systems seems rather minor and insignificant. And one could wonder if it's really all that important. My dear precious people of God, although the differences would seem to be minor, in fact, when taken to their logical conclusion, the differences are radical and irreconcilable. You see, the biblical doctrine of rebirth takes everything away from man and gives it all to God. It denies man of any boasting in his own efforts and gives all the glory to God. It denies man of any boasting. In fact, then it allows God to be God and it acknowledges man to be what he is. Nothing apart from God. And that's precisely why so many people find the doctrines of grace offensive because man gets no credit for his efforts. In the final analysis, the one position gives to man power and ability which the Bible denies him. And at the same time, it robs God of the honor and glory with which Scripture crowns him. It gives man credit for God's work. And consequently, how we understand these doctrines of salvation by grace will out of necessity influence our entire concept of God and of man. 
You see, the one system proclaims a God who saves. The other speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. One makes salvation dependent on the work of a sovereign God. The other gives, gives man credit for his own efforts. One regards it as God's gift of salvation. The other presents it as man's contribution towards salvation. One gives all the praise and the glory to God. The other one wants to, at the very least, share in God's glory. And now the point, and now the one point that God's word insists of us to believe in our text is that sinners do not in any sense at all save themselves. They do not even cooperate or contribute one iota towards their salvation. Oh no, says our text. Salvation, first, last, whole, entire, past, present, and future, is not by blood, not by flesh, not by man's will. No, it is of God Almighty. To him be the glory. To him alone be the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. All glory to God alone. We need to be clear on this matter. When man understands who he is in and of himself, and when at the same time he comes to understand who God truly is, then man looks up from his hopeless condition, and then man realizes what God has done. He realizes that twas not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart, my heart, would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. And then jubilantly and triumphantly that man cries out, O oh Lord my God, how great thou art. And so when we've stood around the baptismal font this morning, we've confessed that every one of us, including little Maxwell, was conceived and born in sin, needing to be born again. Has God promised that he would save him because he was born in a home of Christian parents? No, not by blood. Has he, will Maxwell then be saved then by when he grows up to maturity by exercising his own will or choosing it? No, not by flesh. Well, will he be saved then by doing all of the right things and living a Christian life when he grows up? No, not by the will of man. Will he then be saved because of his baptism in a Christian church? No, a thousand times no. How then can he be saved? The answer was found in our text, by being begotten of God, by being born again by water and the Spirit. I can almost hear you. I can almost hear you forming the question. But Domini, if that baptism doesn't guarantee our salvation, what good is it then? What does it mean? Listen with me again to the form as you read it together earlier. When we baptize into the name of the Father, God witnesses and seals unto us that God makes an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us as his children. When we baptize into the name of the Son, Christ seals unto us that he washes us in his blood from all our sin. And when we baptize into the name of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit assures us that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of, of Christ. Marvel with me of the rich promises of God given here to Maxwell, to Chris and Melissa, and to each of us. In baptism, God visibly demonstrates for us the gospel promise. In baptism, we see God's promise. 
which is preached to you every Sunday again from this pulpit. God the Father has made an eternal covenant of grace. I will be your God and you will be my people. In baptism we see that precious blood of Christ has been shed at Calvary to wash away all of our sin. And in baptism we are reminded that God the Spirit will make our hearts his home. These promises are given to each of us every Sunday and we see that visibly demonstrated in the symbolism of baptism. Uh, to, but, 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 the form, but the form gives us even more. We read, just as in all covenants there are two parts, therefore we, we, meaning each of us, are obliged to a new obedience, namely that we cleave to this one God with all our heart, with all our souls, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and, and that we forsake the world, we crucify our old nature and walk in a godly life. Do you hear it, people of God? Do you hear it? God's covenant promises are true and sure and abiding. It is an eternal covenant, but as the catechism puts it so succinctly in another place when it asks, how are we made right with God? The answer there reads, we need to accept this gift of God with empty hands and a believing heart. Therefore, the baptismal form, in keeping with the truths given us in our text of this morning, admonishes each of us as parents, first of all, to instruct our children in these things as soon as they're able to understand. We are to hold before the eyes of our children God's rich promises given in baptism, and then we urge them, we are to urge them to accept his promises with believing hearts and embrace them as their own. That's what Chris and Melissa have promised at the font that they would do. People God. Do not make the mistake of the Pharisees and assume that we are saved because of Christian parents or heritage. Do not be seduced by the error that claims you can decide the matter for yourself. Away with it all. It is all of God and it's all of grace. Trust God's promises. He held them before your eyes again this morning in the sacrament of baptism. And in your own baptism, he has promised to be your God. Now go on. Instruct your children in these things. Urge them to embrace these promises and then commit yourself to on your knees in prayer, raising them in the way and the will of the Lord. Remind, remind God of that mark of the covenant on the forehead of your child or your children and then plead with God that your child would have been born to be born again. People of God, the question before us this morning was, how can I be born again? To answer that question, God grants me the liberty to say to you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No one comes to Christ with penitent heart and contrite spirit has ever been turned away. In other words, then if you earnestly want to be saved, It has already been given you of God. If only you will believe it. There is new life for you which only God can bestow at the foot of the cross. That life, that new life he grants to all who own him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Resting wholly on his merit. Confiding only in his mercy. 
go forward now in his might, trusting that he is faithful and he will do it. So may it be for each of us and our children. Amen. Shall we pray? Thus saith the mercy of the Lord, I'll be a God to thee. I'll bless thy numerous race, and they shall be a seed to me. Thus to the parents and their seed shall thy salvation come, and numerous households meet at last in one eternal home.